But at some level, I, I do think that we don't want private companies making so many decisions about how to balance social equities without a more democratic process. So I, I think that where, where the lines, in, in my opinion, should be drawn is there should be more uh, guidance and regulation from the states on, um, on, on basically on, on what kind of, you know, take political advertising as an example, um, you know, what discourse should be allowed. I want to talk about Mark Zuckerberg because he was here on Monday and he seemed to be saying, you know what, I'm happy to see more guidance from governments and, you know, I'm happy to do regulation. Some will tell you it's a big shift in tone. I'm not sure if I buy it. Well, there's a difference between a shift in tone and then a shift in behavior, uh, of course. Uh, and I think uh, everyone appreciate that we can have another debate by now about the responsibility of, uh, of giant uh, platforms. Uh, but I think the important thing is to see real change uh, on ground. Uh, and in that, well, we are still considering if not uh, regulation uh, is needed to make sure that all the things that we have discussed and decided in the real world also is represented when we're in our digital reality. Welcome to Big Tech, a podcast about the emerging technologies that are reshaping democracy, the economy, and society. I'm David Scott. And I'm Taylor Owen. Well, we're breaking into our regular broadcast schedule, Taylor, because it's been a big week for tech policy nerds like us in Europe. Just in the last week, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg dropped in on the EU Parliament to pitch his proposal for how he should be regulated. And on Wednesday, the EU unveiled its long-awaited strategy for taking on U.S. tech, as well as proposals for regulating AI and a whole new competition policy regime. So Taylor, why should what's happening in Europe matter for the rest of us? Well, it really does. The, the internet is splintering into different global blocks. Uh, the Chinese government has a real state-centric view of top-down control of the internet. The United States has a much more free market view that's firm-centric and company-centric. But the EU has a, has a focus on rights and on the rights of their citizens and how to protect them through regulations and how to enable an industrial space around AI and around social media companies that puts right the individual rights at the center of them. So how Europe chooses to govern the internet could really affect us all. All right, to find out about what happened this week, we spoke with Mark Scott, the chief technology correspondent at Politico, Mark was in Brussels to cover the trip, and we connected with him in his London office right before he was filing his latest story. Mark, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. So it's been a really busy week in the European Union, and I'm wondering if you could just, uh, when it comes to big tech, and I'm wondering if you could kind of give us a lay of the land. The EU just announced their long-awaited grand strategy for taking on the U.S. tech companies. What was in it? Yeah, so in Europe, it's kind of like uh, you wait forever for digital policy to show up and then it shows up all at once. So today, on the 19th of Feb, um, the commission, which has been planning this for quite a while, has announced the initial stages of what it wants to do with with tech and digital over the next five years. It kind of divides into three areas. One is the broad brush, what is Europe's push on this? And the idea is to try and regain some of the landscape that is now currently dominated by the US and the Chinese players. 
to do that, they are breaking this down into multiple areas. One is focusing on AI, specifically looking to create European and hopefully global rules about how AI and machine learning should be used by both governments and corporations going forward. So this comes down to what are the ethics around facial recognition, what type of transparency tools do you need for algorithms, all that sort of thing. The second part is maybe more specifically focused on helping European companies, is to try and create bigger European-wide pools of industrial data. So we're not talking about people's social media feeds or search histories. It's more to do with how big industry uses data in their everyday lives and how can we pull that together to create big data sets that then can be used to train AI and other digital services. So European companies, frankly, many of whom have not been able to keep up so far with, say, the Googles and the Tencents of this world, can then leapfrog by accessing this region-wide data. So that's what they announced today. So is this then sort of a tech sovereignty play mostly then? 100%. So this is about trying to make sure that Europe doesn't miss out on the next wave of tech, which is frankly mostly AI. And to do that, they're looking to streamline the rules and reduce boundaries and borders between countries. Frankly, they've been trying to do this for decades. It's just the latest iteration of what the Commission and Brussels and the EU are trying to do to regain some of that power. Is there unanimity within the EU on this? I mean, I, I saw some commentary about sort of some divisions coming around between uh, Marguerite Vestager and Thierry Breton, for example, on what the purpose of this kind of strategy is. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the great thing about the European Union and being based here in Europe is that nothing is, is as simple as it seems. So there is a sense that there is a European a union that everyone speaks from the same um, platform that can that is not happening so there's a division right now going on with the eu between both countries and within brussels about how aggressive europe should be in promoting its own interests both domestically within europe and overseas in, in one camp you have margaret vestica who is the european's uh, competition czar as well as head of the broader industrial policy she is more focused on open markets, liberalism, allow uh, com competitors to compete and see who wins. Uh, that's mostly from the Northern Europeans. And then Thierry Breton, who's the French commissioner, is a lot more statist, interventionist, frankly, Gallic, to be very stereotypical. <laughs> um, uh, and, and he is more willing to use the all the levers that are at the EU's disposal to promote domestic, frankly, national champions incumbents. It, it, it is ironic that he comes from, he was the former chief executive of France's former state telco monopoly. So you can kind of see where he's coming from. Mark, this came on the hills of last month, a lot of world leaders gathering in Davos for the World Economic Forum and taxation policy. At that moment, you had obviously the, the French 3% tax come up and then you had Donald Trump uh, lash out about the tax. Was that included in part of this or is that an entirely separate conversation? So it's part of it, but not part of today's announcement. So what has happened is that amongst these the digital tax discussions that are going on within the OECD, everyone's punted it until January uh, to 2021 to, to make unilateral decisions on whether to move forward. The idea being is to give the OECD some, an opportunity to fix the problem. What the European Union have, have said they would do is that if there's no global deal, 
they're going to move ahead aggressively with a European-wide digital tax. So within the today's announcement, it's part of the drumbeat for regulation. Some of the Europeans are very eager to move ahead with a region-wide tax. They're just holding off until December when, frankly, most people think the OECD is going to fail. Do you get the sense that there's a real feeling that this regulation will project globally? I mean, you hear sometimes people talk about the EU plus, right? That this is actually not just about the European market, but it's a, it's a geopolitical projection in a way. So the Europeans are very eager to uh, carry on from what they did with their privacy rules back in 2018. The idea being that if you set the de facto standard globally, others will fall in line. And, and you can see that happening from South Korea to Brazil. This is happening within privacy. They are trying to do the same thing when it comes to AI in particular. The concept being, if we set global rules for our 500 million well-heeled consumers, those who want to sell into Europe are going to have to follow those rules. And frankly, because the US doesn't have any rules and China's a whole different thing, the rest of the world will fall in line. I'm slightly skeptical on that, mostly because AI and privacy, although there is some overlap, um, are very different areas. The Europeans have been dominating in global privacy rules since the 1990s. No one has set AI rules yet. And so Europe is starting from a weaker base. And they also don't have the domestic European champions like the US and China do from the corporate side to push that. So I would be concerned about Europe trying to go global on AI rules, but frankly, no one following them because there's no track record of Europe doing that. Okay, well, we, we want to get into the AI uh, regulation stuff. And certainly, you know, uh, from a North American perspective, it, it is relevant, uh, particularly in Canada, where we have some large players like Element AI that are also trying to step in and, and play that role. But before we do, I have to ask about Mark Zuckerberg and his state visit to Brussels last week. What was he doing? I mean, naturally, I, I suspect all of this stuff happening right now is causing great alarm at Men in Menlo Park. What was he doing in Brussels and how was it received? It's funny you call it a state visit, that exactly what it was. You had sort of the, the curtain calls, you had all the, the pompous ceremony that the EU has on its, at its disposal being rolled out. So he was in town for a couple of reasons. Um, he was at the Munich Security Conference the weekend before to talk about encryption and digital tax and sort of just show he's a good corporate citizen. Within Brussels, his specific focus was on content and content uh, liability and who should control that, what role should platforms play in policing users' material online. To be frank, it went down really badly. Zuckerberg came in with Nick Clegg, the former Deputy UK Prime Minister, who's now their chief lobbyist, to sort of say, we're the good guys, give us, you set the regulation, we'll follow it. Everyone in Brussels, and frankly, I think I would suggest in Ottawa too, are willing to move, move forward with regulation, but they are very eager for Facebook and others to do their, their part too. So Zuckerberg came in with this message of, we'll do whatever you tell us. The response was, that's great, but there's some steps you can take yourself, which you're not doing. And frankly, Facebook didn't really get that. They, there's, there was a sense that, you know, we're here to play our part. The commission were like, okay, fine, but you're not doing enough on your own. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I assume he brought with him a copy of the white paper they released the next day, right? Like that was probably the framing of those conversations. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it, it felt to me like that white paper, particularly on the harmful speech side, positioned some core issues in a way that were strategically advantageous to Facebook, right? So I'm thinking of there being global standards rather than national ones, right? Which bumps up right against how EU member countries have been 
regulating the space to begin with and bumps up right against how the statement today is talking about national policy experimentation and regulatory experimentation, right? I mean, the cynic in me thinks Turkeys are never going to vote for Christmas. So uh, um, I, th- I think there's a legitimate point to say we need global rules because you and I don't want to be sh- having a different form of the internet no matter where we're based. The problem with that is, to your point, domestic rules are moving forward. And even today, you had the Germans, pass- at least in the German cabinet, passing updates to their own domestic hate speech rules which will likely come into force by the end of the year. So I think Facebook saying we need global rules plays well to the masses and it plays well to the shareholders. I just think that is significantly off where most of the policy discussions are happening, both here in Europe and I would suggest also in Canada. Yeah, and part of me always struggles with the need for global standards around speech because of all the regulatory actions in the tech space. Speech is something that is always been entrenched in national law, right? And and for really important historical reasons. We govern speech in totally different ways in different countries. So I just, uh, the disconnect there seems pretty vast. I would agree. And I think that kind of plays to the point where Facebook slightly doesn't get, at least on outside of the US, the nuances that are required to, to do this stuff. Again, I, I have some sympathy for Facebook looking to have global rules because yeah. it would make everyone's life easier. But to your point, that is not how this works. And you look at what's going on in uh, Germany, France, the UK, uh, even down to Singapore and its fake news law. Like, these things are happening domestically. And if you don't respond to them quickly, you're going to get uh, left behind. One last thing on the white paper which caught my attention was this focus on not doing absolute takedowns for all flagged hate speech, but focusing instead on the amplification of it and having thresholds for um, the reach and velocity with which things are spreading and that those are subject to takedown. Do you know, do you have any thoughts on that and how that might have been received? Because I think that's actually getting at some of the nuance of this conversation, right? That it's algorithmic amplification that might be the challenge, not any one person posting to five people. Yeah. And I think you saw that it's slightly in the, the Christchurch call fallout, that the idea yeah. being that you, if you reduce amplification, you can solve, if that's the right word to use, some of these issues. Um, there's, there is sympathy for that argument. It's a question of who sets that, the, those li- limits, how do you police them? Yeah. And then in certain national capitals, I think people want a, just a categoric takedown because even if it's being seen by five people, for some politicians, that's too much. So th- I think that the nuance is there. Will it play well with politicians, many of whom have to still sell this to voters? I don't think it will. And it might ap- actually open the door to holding the algorithms themselves accountable and to some transparency on them. Which... I think that's the next step. Yeah. I, I think we you will see significant moves on, I mean, per the European Union's announcement today when it comes to, at least on the AI side, the algorithms, that there's definitely going to be a push for greater transparency, more um, ethical oversight, auditing, that that will be coming. You, you had George Soros, uh, the financier, writing in the Financial Times calling for Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg to step down. You mentioned the Christchurch call. I'm thinking of the proxy that was done, started by the New Zealand Superfund to get uh, investors to rethink their investments uh, in some of these companies. Beyond the regulatory political realm, has there been conversation on the corporate social responsibility uh, and the role that they can play in, in alleviating some of these concerns? Um, frankly, no. Um, I think some of that is because, at least here in Europe, the 
the business community and the policymaking community um, don't talk to each other. And so the, the idea of providing some sort of CSR role or shareholder accountability uh, just is not part of the discussion now purely because politicians aren't making those those links, nor are investors uh, themselves. But I also, I mean, I, I haven't checked the share price today, but I would, I think most of the big tech firms are at record highs when it comes to their stock price. So I don't see how this regulatory increased regulatory oversights or proposals have affected their bottom line yet. Yeah, in fact, when the when they got their fines from the uh, the feds, Facebook stock shot up. Exactly. Aside from the visit and the announcement, there was also a package of AI regulatory plans laid out. Who did that and what? So, so it's, it can, from a distance, it can be hard to sort of navigate which committees and groups and EU politicians are doing what exactly. Um, who launched the AI regulatory package and, and what was it saying? I mean, to be frank, I'm quite close to this and even I get confused. So that's completely fine. Okay. Um, I'm glad to hear that. So the way this works out is that the division of power uh, within the European Union right now kind of splits between two commissioners. You have Vestager, who has her competition role, but broadly she is the woman pushing and is behind some of the AI proposals. And they are focusing a lot on the ethical use of data, uh, the algorithmic transparency, the potential limitations on facial recognition and other type of corporate uses of, of AI. And, and so the next step is, is kind of complicated. I think there's a consultation until late spring, I believe, to get sort of interested parties feedback. And then that will then lead to some horse trading and the commission will come up with some rules probably in Q3, Q4 about what to do next. And then there's probably another two-ish years of internal lobbying before we get anything on the books. So we're looking at 2023-ish, if anything happens. So there's that part. But then it's very difficult to separate that from the data package that was announced today. And a lot because frankly, data runs the AI networks of the future. And a lot of that is about opening up industrial data for specifically EU companies, and I would suggest incumbents, so they can then also get into the AI game. They also have the data sets to the, that they can pull to use and build up their own AI capacities to compete with the US and Chinese players. So it's a European data trust type scenario. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And the, the European data trust, I believe, is going to be happening, at least the proposals by the end of this year, in twenty end of 2020, but then, ironically, some of the people involved in the data trust are the U.S. players because they have significant data center and, and data infrastructure in Europe. So legally, they can because, for example, Facebook Ireland and the HQ in Ireland is an, is technically a, a European company. So they can also participate in that. So some there's going to be some horse trading, I think, on the geographical domain of who can participate. When you think of the scale of data access on both the Chinese and U.S. tech side. Is it even realistic to think that there's a real industrial capacity here that can be built on top of this? Or is it just going to be too late? I think on the consumer side, it's too late. I, I think from the industrial use, uh, sort of the industry 4.0, which the Germans always like to talk about, there is a potential opportunity there, particularly from the Siemens, the Bosch, the Alstoms, the sort of the, the industrial players who might be able to become more efficient in their business practices by using AI and, and machine learning. But do I expect the Chinese and American consumer facing companies to lose out on AI because of these data trusts? No, I don't. I mean, I think, you, I mean, frankly, this is 
it gets super complicated, but I, this also plays into Europe's very legitimate and frankly very good privacy standards makes it very difficult to replicate what the Americans and Chinese do because of the limitations on access to sensitive data, getting consent from individuals. That in Europe is already a stumbling block for using data in AI, and that's only going to get more progressively more difficult now that the commission is paying more attention to it. Mark, let's just ask a, a blunt follow-up on this. You obviously you have the United States, you have China spending billions, hundreds of billions of dollars on AI technology, and then you have the rest of the G8, I'll say, we'll throw Canada in there as well. Do we even have a seat at the table in this conversation? I mean, we can put up all these these ethical frameworks as much as we want, but does it really matter? So this is the question I'm asking myself, frankly, looking at these proposals. I, I would like to say yes, I think money isn't the only thing that matters. I think there, I mean, naively, I would I would hope there is an ethical standard that can be set. But then I also think money talks and the level of sophistication of AI already in place by some of the Chinese and US players, I struggle to see how with the resources available to the rest of the G8, to you, to use your example, you can catch up, particularly when you're starting to put limitations and frankly, legitimate limitations on use of AI through ethical rules. I don't see the Chinese and Americans doing that. So if you're, if they're running a hundred meter race and you're running a hundred meter race with hurdles, who's going to win? I mean, one of the ways you can get at it is I guess by putting actual barriers up to commercial activity from those companies in your market. And it seems like that's partly what their, the the other report that came out this week is the EU competition report, right? That, yeah. that can you actually change the way foreign companies operate in your markets? And that is the $64 million question. I think, frankly, the, the bigger question to be asking right now, because I th I've, of all the rules to be put forward today, changes to the competition and antitrust rules, I, I would suggest that the long the biggest potential effect of all this because Europe and its competition authority has been the most muscular in responding to foreign firms. So if there is an ability to limit or impinge foreign actors from operating within the EU, which is frankly the, still the biggest consumer market in the Western world, that could have an effect. But even saying that, it's, a, it's an open question how successful that will be. So just final comment, I guess, on, on all of this flurry of activity is why is this happening now? And do you think this is sort of the sign of a really aggressive push happening from the EU now? Yeah, is it the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> I would suggest it's the end of the beginning. It's funny, I was actually going to put that on Twitter today, but I think you, you beat me to it. Um, I think it's definitely the end of the beginning because, say, in the last five years, Europe has, through its competition privacy policy, stepped up to the plate in terms of regulation and has got a lot of confidence. This next five years, particularly in the package announced today, is then trying to implement that and push a European agenda through tech sovereignty and a more muscular antitrust approach to the rest of the world. What I find really interesting is that throughout this whole conversation we've had is at no point is the US government mentioned. And without, not to knock Ottawa, forgive me, but without a another um, Western Democratic government providing a counterweight for the European proposals, I would suggest that although they might not be perfect, Europe is going to run the gamut of policies purely because DC is at MIA. Yeah, we, and we've had a ton of talk in Ottawa about potentially stepping into this space, but not the kind of concrete movement that you're seeing in this. So 
it, it might be that it spurs action in other democratic countries as well. I think so. Um, and I would hope so, because as much as I, you know, I, I applaud what the Europeans have done, it's not perfect. And I think if Ottawa, Canberra, uh, maybe Tokyo can step in and help, it makes everything better. But to your point, yeah, this is a big step, but it's the beginning of a step. And we should not get too carried away with ourselves because the final rules that come into place may be very different from what was proposed today. So it would be now a question of can they put their money where their mouth is and can they sort of push back on some of the lobby effort, efforts that are already going on to weaken these proposals to get them across the line. And that is the question we don't know the answer to. Mark, we uh, appreciate that you're probably filing on deadline and that you took the time to talk to us today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. The Big Tech Podcast is a partnership between the Center for International Governance Innovation, CG, and The Logic. CG is a Canadian nonpartisan think tank focused on international governance, economy, and law. The Logic is an award-winning digital publication reporting on the innovation economy. Big Tech is produced and edited by Trevor Hunsberger. Visit bigtechpodcast.com for more information about the show. Thank you.